The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The only reason why Joe Biden uh, won the 2020 election is that he strongly increased his share of the vote among white voters. And the only reason why Donald Trump was competitive in the 2020 election is that he strongly improved his share of the vote among virtually every other demographic group, among African Americans, among Asian Americans, and particularly among Latinos. And uh, right now we're seeing in polls uh, that Latinos are continuing to trend strongly uh, towards the, the, the Republican Party. So in fact, it's not true that demography is destiny. It's not true that there is this inevitability uh, to Democrats winning in that kind of way. And the more we talk about it in these ways, the more we basically play into the conspiracy theory of a great replacement, which, which, which makes people worried about the future and makes them think that we're headed for this uh, sort of fundamental transformation of American society. Uh, that scares a lot of people. It makes it easier for people like Donald Trump to win. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 19th, 2022. Throughout human history, democracies have been the exception, not the rule. And that's been doubly true for ethnically, religiously, or linguistically diverse societies. But these are precisely the societies that benefit the most from politically stable and inclusive institutions. So why is it so hard to get them to work? And what can we do to encourage them? Yasha Monk teaches political science at John Hopkins University and is one of the leading commentators on the threats to liberal democracy. And he's just published a book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. I spoke with Yasha about his book, his diagnosis of what ails diverse democracies, and what can be done to strengthen them. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 19th. Yasha Monk on the future of diverse democracies. Yasha, let's start at the top. What is the great experiment? And most importantly, why do you think it's still in its experimental rather than proven phase? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's lots of democracies in the history of the world that have been very uh, homogeneous, or at least where the people making decisions were homogeneous. So from ancient Athens to the medieval city-states of Italy to the country where, where I grew up, Germany, at the moment of the founding of a successful democracy in the late 1940s, those countries prided themselves on the homogeneity. Then you have countries like the United States, which have, of course, been very diverse from the beginning, but which uh, also really subjugated uh, a lot of ethnic and religious groups, which only allowed one majority group to have full citizenship and full political decision-making rights. 
So what we're doing now in the United States, but also in so many other democracies around the world, is to try and build a highly ethnically and religiously heterogeneous democracy in which we actually treat people as equals. And that is without historical precedent. So that's what I mean by the experiment. Now, you asked the interesting question of, you know, why do I think it's not yet proven? Well, for a number of reasons. The first is that uh, we have had so many relatively diverse societies in the history of the world, which seem to be working pretty well for decades, sometimes for centuries, and then fell apart in the most terrible and brutal ways possible. That degenerated into uh, civil war, into genocide, um, into just the worst barbarities that human history has on offer. And so uh, our experiment is pretty is pretty new. It's pretty fresh. I think it would be uh, naive to think that there isn't a risk, that it could go very badly wrong. Uh, and the second reason, of course, is that though I think we've actually made significant progress towards treating everybody equally, significant progress towards a real social and cultural equality, the the after effects of the exclusion of the past, um, of the uh, suppression of uh, minority groups in the past are still with us. And so we haven't yet managed to build a society in which we are actually treating everybody as fully equal. The way I read your book is that your political analysis is fundamentally downstream of this one might call anthropological question of the role of diversity in in sort of human society and human organization. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that because there is a lot of, I think, simplified and oversimplified talk about diversity in our society. So on the right, diversity is uh, viewed with general suspicion. On the left, it's viewed as almost axiomatically a good thing, right? Diversity just is a positive. But as you point out very nicely, whether diversity leads to actual intergroup cooperation depends entirely on background factors. And, and here you talk about the work of social psychologists like uh, Gordon Alpert. So w- what did people like Alpert find about intergroup relations? And you know, how do we get the benefits of diversity while dealing with some of its real trade-offs? Yeah, you know, the way I think about this is that there's this temptation to say, how hard can it be for different groups to get along? You know, how hard is it to be tolerant towards a neighbor? How hard is it not to be a bigot or a racist? And of course, I I agree with that sentiment. But I think it can lead to real naivety about how difficult the project we're now embarked on is, and then paradoxically make us a lot more pessimistic about how well we're doing. Because if your baseline is, this should be bloody easy, and then you're looking at the injustices that exist in our society, the discrimination that exists in our society, it's easy to say, well, there's something uniquely bad about this moment, about us, Perhaps we have to just throw out all the rules of our society or we have to go in the tone. But whatever it is, it's just, you know, we are doing terribly. That pessimism can be very dangerous. That pessimism is what's allowing people like Marine Le Pen to be competitive in, in, in the elections in France. It's, it, it really helped Donald Trump as well. And so I have developed a different way of thinking about this question in doing my research for this book. And the starting point of this is that actually making these ethnically and religiously diverse societies work is really, really hard. And most places in the history of the world that have tried have failed. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of them is is the work of a different social psychologist that that I've been thinking about a lot, Henry Teifel. So when I grew up, I thought, wouldn't it be great 
to have a future in which we're not redefined really by groups in which we kind of think of ourselves as individuals or perhaps as cosmopolitans who care as much about anybody in the world as, as, as about the people who are, you know, happen to be around us. But the more I've studied social psychology, the more I've realized how deep this instinct to favor the in-group and discriminate against the out-group runs. So, so Teufel in the 60s was really trying to understand how could people do such horrible things to each other during World War II, during, during the Holocaust? What was it about groups that motivated them? And he had a really interesting idea, which is to say, hey, I'm going to create these groups that are so pointless, so meaningless, that nobody would possibly discriminate in favor of the members of the in-group against the members of the out-group. And so he got a bunch of kids from Bristol in England into the lab, and he showed them a sheet of paper with 150 dots on it, just randomly scattered around. Um, and he said, how many dots do you think are on the sheet of paper? And some said 120, and some said 180. And he said, great, we're going to have underestimators and overestimators. And when he had underestimators and overestimators play these games against each other, which had you know some monetary prize. And it turned out that the members of the underestimators discriminated against the members of the overestimators. So Teufel failed in his undertaking to create a group that was so pointless that his members wouldn't favor their group members against others. But from that came a deep insight, which is once you've coded somebody as on my team, you're going to favor them. Once you've coded somebody as on their team, you're going to discriminate against them. By the way, I've recreated this with some of my undergrads who think of themselves as the most tolerant people in the world, in many ways are the most tolerant people in the world. I asked them, is a hot dog a sandwich or not? And lo and behold, the people who are on team hot dog is a sandwich start to discriminate <laughs> against the people who are on team hot dog is not a sandwich. So, I mean, I think we can all agree that hot dogs are not sandwiches. Uh, I will, you know, I know that I'm going to alienate half listeners, whatever <laughs> position I take. So I'm going to stay in my, uh, you know, um, but, but, but here's the thing, you know, who you think of as a member of the in-group when and what kind of prejudice you hold about them, that really depends on the context. So what Gordon Alport showed is that when you have contact with members of different groups and you engage in cooperative undertakings in which the sort of general social constellation, including the authorities, are telling you, hey, you should think of yourself as being on the same team, not on different teams. Then you can reduce a lot of prejudice and you can start recoding them as members of your own team. You can say, hey, actually, this neighbor of mine who's of a different race, I thought of them as on a different team because whatever it may be, I'm white and they're African-American. But you know what? We're both residents of this housing block and we have shared interests and we like each other and we trust each other. And then suddenly we can fight together for, for a common purpose. So I, I agree with you that cosmopolitanism as the sort of affirmative, positive moral vision for what a diverse society should look like is, is unrealistic. So then the question becomes, well, what do we replace it with? Now, on the right, the replacement seems to be, well, we're just going to deny the existence of diversity, or rather we're going to try to prevent it. And, and that, I think, is, is obviously a non-starter if you care about liberal and democratic values. On the left, there appear to be more sort of sophisticated approaches, and they, they fall under you know, different labels, right? You talk about the communitarian alternative to, to liberalism. You talk about um, consociational democracy, which is, in some sense, an attempt to 
take the communitarian insight of group identity and make a workable political model ar- around that. Why, in your view, are sort of these approaches, which which recognize right the groupishness of of people, as you point out, uh, and then try to balance that off each other? Why why is that not, in your view, uh, a sustainable path forward? Yeah. So so one of the things we see is people trying to figure out, you know, what is the right relationship between the state, the group, and the individual, right? Once you have all these multi-ethnic, multi-religious societies, um, the natural question to ask is, you know, how do these different levels of analysis relate to each other? And communitarians, for example, have a kind of answer to that. They say, look, if a problem is that, you know, I'm a member of one religion, you're a member of a different religion, and when other people are not religious at all, and we're somehow trying to figure out how do we live together in this society, well, rather than thinking of our democracy as consisting of citizens which have rights and duties, perhaps we should think of it as being constituted at the essential level by these different groups. So according to the communitarian British philosopher Lord Parrick, we should think of society as an association of associations. Um, so the fundamental unit is something like the Southern Baptist Convention and, you know, CAIR and so on and so forth. Now, that can accomplish one key task of a liberal society to some extent, which is to protect minority groups against the tyranny of a state or against uh, the, the tyranny of a majority. But, you know, as long as we recognize all relevant groups, might make sure that even if your views are unpopular, you can go and be a member of this community and, you know, have an association of religious life within it. That's an important thing. But what this cannot accomplish is to give us a second kind of freedom that is very important. Now, Diana Samoglu and James Robinson in, in their latest book, The Narrow Corridor, talk about the cage of norms. And they point out that in the history of the world, a lot of the time people have been dominated and subjugated not by the state, not by the majority, but by their own community, by their own parents, by their own neighbors, by their own priest or rabbi or imam, by their own village, telling them how they have to live and punishing them, sometimes very severely, if they live in a different kind of way. And one of the many problems with a communitarian kind of conception is that it can't explain why the state should interfere in those moments. If you're a gay teenager born into an evangelical Christian family, or if you're a woman in her early 20s born into a Turkish family in, in, in Berlin, and your parents are trying to tell you how to live, your parents are telling you that you shouldn't be gay or that you shouldn't have a boyfriend before you're married, and they threaten you if you live out uh, your own conception of life, then the state has an obligation to intervene and make sure that you actually get to live a self-determined life. And so for me, the sort of philosophically liberal conception of the relationship between the state and the group and the individual has a much better answer to offer. Because what liberals say is, we recognize how important groups are to people. We recognize how important religion is to people. That is why some of the most fundamental liberal freedoms are freedom of worship, are freedom of association. And we also know that most people are never going to change the group, right? Most people grow up in a particular family and have obligations to that family that they continue to engage in. They grow up in a particular kind of religious faith and and they stay with it most of their life or all of their life. That's fine. But the reason why we value this group, the reason why we have respect is that you have a freedom to leave them. If you did choose to say, hey, I grew up in this religious family, but that's not how I want to live. I want to change my conception of life from that of my parents. 
you have a right to do that. And that's actually what gives groups in our society their dignity. If they were enforcers of a cage of norms, then we shouldn't have respect for them. And insofar as they are enforcers of a cage of norms, we have an obligation to, to liberate people from it. And so that, I think, is, is one of the problems with this weird political philosophy, which didn't really start on the left, but has now been embraced by parts of the left. Now, what you're describing, I think, is is a kind of old-fashioned, I don't mean that pejoratively, but a kind of very standard individualized liberalism. And yet, as you point out, that kind of a conception of what a nation stands for, a, a, a thin civic conception of you know what it means to be an American, for example, which is to uh, you know have this guiding document that the of the Constitution, which puts forward these liberal values, that that itself does not tend to be enough, and that rather what you need is to go beyond that into a shared culture. And so I had a couple of questions about that because I thought that was a particularly important point in in the book, and, and one is what to you constitutes a shared culture, right? Uh, because we could have a debate over whether that requires, for example, a shared language, um, which is a, a, a relatively controversial point. Um, but also, once you've decided on what a shared culture is, how do you enforce that shared culture without then at the same time risking some of the liberal commitments that you have made, which is that every individual gets to define, in some sense, their cultural world for themselves? That, that seems to be a sort of a difficult tension in, in your project. Yeah, so first of all, I think so far we've really only just talked about the basic legal conception, right? How should we structure the rights and duties that people enjoy in, in a state? But that leaves open the question of what kind of society should we aspire to? And what will be the cultural and the social preconditions for ensuring that that kind of society actually is and remains stable? And, and there we get into the realm of, of culture and into the realm of a kind of ideal we should embrace for uh, how much integration we should have. You know, I talk in the book about the two leading metaphors that people have used and talked about in the last years, and I think they're both flawed. So the first is the me metaphor of a melting pot, which comes from a play by Israel Zangwaller, which uh, nobody in the literature seems to have actually read, because it's a really beautiful, inspiring play talking about a Jewish uh, refugee from, from Russia and this daughter of a Russian baron who fall in love and they want to get married. And when they find out that um, actually her father has massacred his family. And so, uh, you know, the protagonist says, I, I can't do this. You know, every time I kiss you, shall I think of the faces of my dead relatives? But then they actually manage to put aside these hatreds of the ancient world and uh, of the old world and actually get married and go through with it. So it's a very heroic conception of what it would take to have this new American man. It's much more attractive than it's often portrayed to be. But the idea of a melting pot nevertheless implies that people will ultimately leave behind too much, that they have to leave behind all of their cultural origins, all of their religion, but even for the new American culture will bear the influence of different parts of the world. All members of it will ultimately be practically indistinguishable to each other. And, and that is a too homogenizing idea for what our society should look like. Now, on the other hand, you have something that chimes a little bit more of a communitarian conception, which is something like the salad bowl or something like uh, the mosaic, uh, which is a vision of society in which it's so wonderful because you can walk around uh, an American city and you see all these different communities, but they among themselves really don't interact, right? You just have America as this kaleidoscope of completely unconnected groups 
that have a freedom to live out their own uh, conception of life, but but don't form any kind of meaningful connections with each other. And that, I think, is uh, uh, going to result in too little mutual solidarity, too little uh, commonality of, of purpose to sustain a welfare state, to have a solidarity with each other, uh, to uphold uh, a functioning military, to uh, actually uh, feel like we need to avoid deep conflicts. It, it'll tempt us into the kind of fragmentation we're seeing in places like Lebanon. So what I'm suggesting is uh, the metaphor of, of a public park. There could be other metaphors, but the point of it is that in a park, you know, I can go with my friends and not interact with anybody else. But it, but I can also go and make friends with new groups of people. It can also be a place of encounter. And the more those encounters there are, the more attractive this kind of park is. So we can say in society, you have a right to be Amish, to be just within your community and, you know, minimizing your interaction with anybody who's not Amish. And that is your good right as an American. That's great. But we do want a society in which most people choose to have those kinds of interactions, choose to actually spend time with each other. Now, you know, one thing that I find interesting about this debate, though, is that a lot of the time uh, academics and activists really run away from the reality and society on it, right? So they say, you know, is it okay to require that people have the same language? You know, is it racist to say that you know, English is is going to be the language of the United States. You know, why can't we have two or three languages here? You know, I think something would be lost if uh, there would be a substantial number of American citizens or a substantial number of people living in the United States who can't communicate with each other. So, so I do actually have a strong preference for continuing to have one lingua franca, one uh, language of mutual comprehension in the United States. But the fact of the matter is that this is simply not a problem. And it's one of those weird points in which the right ends up having a strange touching point with the left. Because, you know, on the right, if you hear certain people in Fox News, they're saying, these immigrants from Central America, they're coming in, they're not even learning English. Then on the left, people are saying, you know, it would be racist to require people coming in from Central America to learn the language. Well, we have very clear sociological uh, models and, and empirical evidence for what actually happens, which is that the first generation of people who come in often struggle to learn English very well. Um, you know, they come in often when they're adults, they may not have had a lot of educational opportunities in the country they come from. They often live in neighborhoods that are pretty heavily Latino or, or, or Asian American or whatever the case may be. And even if they're in the country for 40 or 50 years, they might never speak good English by the end of it. Now, their children, in the vast majority, um, speak both languages, the language of origin and English, very, very well. And most of them prefer English when they're interacting with their siblings, with relatives with a similar migration background in the same generation, uh, or their friends. And by the third generation, only about 1% of Americans uh, who are descended from immigrants still speak the language of origin. So whatever your preference is, the truth of the matter is that America continues to be really powerful at integrating immigrants and at uh, making them part of a shared culture. So it, it sounds like, in your view, a lot of the debates that we're having are, are sort of fake debates because they're not responsive to a real problem. So, you know, going back to the the topic of culture, 
right? One might ask the question of what should the government do to promote a shared culture? And maybe the response is the government doesn't have to do anything. The shared culture will simply emerge and it's enough that we just recognize it uh, and that things are going in the right direction. And if that's the case, then this gets me to sort of another question I had about the book. Um, and I'll say this by way of a compliment. So sort of one thing that I really appreciated about the book was just how fundamentally sensible it was, kind of just what a calm analysis of the current situation it presents. Because as you point out, a lot of the indicators that we care about are, are going in the right direction. Various uh, you know, achievement gaps, wealth gaps between different ethnic groups are, are closing. Rates of intermarriage have gone up. Um, you know, rates of approval for intermarriage have gone uh, up. The very ethnic definition or the very definition of what it means to be, quote, white, it turns out to be much more malleable than a lot of people think, which means that this category is much less stable and therefore much more inclusive over time. And so in one sense, it does seem to me, or at least the takeaway I had of reading the book, is that we're doing okay, and the real key is to just not mess things up. Do you agree with that characterization? And, and if so, why do you think there is so much pessimism on both the left and the right when it just does not seem that based in reality? Yeah, I do agree with you. There's a weird concordance of pessimism on different sides of a political spectrum with a very different people we blame. Um, so, so immigration is a great example of this. Um, I talked a little bit about language, but this is also true when you talk about socioeconomic progress. Uh, so again, when you listen to people on the right, you know, they will tell you that you know Irish and Italian immigrants a hundred years succeeded, a hundred years ago succeeded uh, because they were the right kind of immigrants and because they worked hard. Uh, whereas today's immigrants from Central America and elsewhere supposedly don't succeed because it is implied they're the wrong kind of immigrants and they don't try hard and perhaps there's something wrong with them. Now, of course, the left is horrified by, by this set of ideas, but it itself has a very pessimistic depiction of the state of Latino America, for example. So it will say, you know, 100 years ago, Irish and Italian immigrants, they could succeed uh, because they were white and so they weren't discriminated against in the same ways. Uh, you know, the immigrants that are coming in today from El Salvador and Mexico and other places they really don't stand a chance because we're such a racist, such a discriminatory society. Now, obviously, there is real discrimination and real racism, and there are very real challenges uh, that immigrants from those countries face. But actually, the best study of this, with over a million data points by economists at Stanford and Princeton and elsewhere, showed that the speed of socioeconomic progress is about the same for people coming in from Central and Latin America today as it was for Italian and Irish immigrants 100 years ago. It takes a while. It took a while 100 years ago as well. The first generation often doesn't succeed uh, as much as we would like. But the children, the grandchildren, are experiencing more socioeconomic mobility than the children and grandchildren of similarly situated whites or similarly situated Americans who have been in the country uh, for a long time. And so that shows that the far right is obviously wrong when it says there's something wrong with these immigrants. But you know what? For all of the real injustices that we have in our society today, the more standard narrative that these immigrants just don't get a chance is, is wrong as well. And so, you know, we can you summarize very nicely the, the different points of optimism I have in the book. Uh, but, but, but yeah, you are right on the top line. But the way I think about this is that actually American society has improved tremendously over the last decades. There's still a long way to go, but we are on a very good trajectory. In the middle of society, uh, most of the trends are actually very heartening. 
But there's also a kind of civil war of the elites going on. And there's also obviously the authoritarian assault on our democratic institutions going on. And so the question is, will the political level, will the elites manage to mess this up and manage to divide us in a fundamental way? Or will we be able to build on the positive developments in the heart of society in order to make the great experiment succeed? And that's an open question. The answer to that is not trivial, but we absolutely should think about how do we protect and strengthen the positive processes already going on rather than wanting to come in and saying, you know, I and my laptop came up with the amazing solution that's going to fix everything. And if only we pass this law in Congress, that's, uh, you know, what's going to avoid disaster. I'm much more skeptical about those kinds of solutions. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once, because the information will get back into the systems. It does it, and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports, and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up 
and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. I want to stay on the question of the left for a second, because I do think in the way I kind of view your book is obviously it, it it takes on both the right and the left. But I do think fundamentally it's an intervention in debates within the left itself. Part of it is because you yourself, as, as you point out in your book and your other writings are you know of the center left. I, I think you and I have a fairly similar position in that kind of um, boring Obama-esque uh, center leftism. And in addition, the, the left, which has sort of come to dominate our 
uh, certainly cultural intellectual institutions, um, I think therefore plays a kind of outsized role uh, here. And it does seem like the biggest intellectual impediment on the left to your vision of what a diverse democracy should look like is what you call strategic essentialism on the question of racial and ethnic identity, right? The idea that the correct both sort of moral and also political stance is um, in any situation to emphasize the question of in particular ethnic uh, division and and sort of ethnic group identity. And, and this is accompanied by this kind of ironic importation, uh, as you point out, of the, quote, one drop rule, right, uh, which which stems from the worst histories of, of American white supremacy that would uh, basically count uh, anyone with any dissent, uh, any non-white dissent as non-white. This has seemed to come uh, also to be the dominant uh, view uh, w- within the sort of left kind of elite intellectual sphere uh, as to also how to think about uh, ethnic divisions in America. Where does this this come from, this strategy of strategic essentialism? Why has it become so dominant on the left? And do you think it will continue to dominate left of center thinking? It it does seem to have taken on an almost sort of hegemonic hold over over the left in a way that seems potentially quite problematic for for the project that you you outline. Yeah, and I agree with you, by the way, about why I spend time uh, arguing with with the left. It's it's partially that I'm off the left. It's partially that a lot of the people um, around me are, are on the left. It's also because uh, I have much more hope for the left being able to course correct. And it's also because the fate of a republic depends in many ways on the left uh, cleaning house, which is to say that, you know, I have no hope of persuading Donald Trump to become an upstanding citizen who defends the values and the principles of the American Republic. That boat has sailed a long time ago. But I do think that you know, how Democrats run in the 2024 election and how the broader cultural mainstream talks about those issues uh, is going to determine whether or not Trump wins. And so it's actually a really urgent and important political task precisely for the people who see the, the, the biggest and the most acute danger as coming from Donald Trump to counteract uh, some of the alienating things in the mainstream for ordinary voters, but also uh, just some of the deep pessimism, which makes it easier for people like Trump to say to black voters, for example, what the hell do you have to lose? You may as well vote for me. Now, that didn't work for black voters. But when you know we mirror the deep pessimism of the far right, it makes it so much easier for the candidates to win. So on strategic essentialism, you know, this is an idea which was introduced uh, by Gayatri Spivak, an Indian uh, literary theorist in the 1980s in an interview. Um, and it comes from a relatively sensible and natural thought, which is that, first of all, a lot of the identity categories that we use and talk about are artificial. But as the postmodernist pointed out, uh, these categories are actually very complicated, but we should be really questioning about them. That is the element in which Spivak actually is not an essentialist. Um, but she then says, uh, you know, a lot of groups are discriminated against on the basis of their skin color, on the basis of a religion, on the basis of other parts of their ascriptive identities. And so strategically for political purposes, she argues, we should act as though the essentialist account of race and identity were true, as for people who are really defined by these features, because that's what's going to allow oppressed groups to fight against injustice. Now, at first, that just uh, was a way of explaining why it's fine for people to do interest group politics, for people to 
uh, organize against injustices for people to try and build organizations that say, hey, here's a set of people that have certain commonalities, take our interests and our points of view into account. And, and, and that's not a problem. But it has essentially led to a state of affairs in which the strategic element of this picture has basically dropped out. When you look to many leftist activist circles today, they sort of do this proviso where they say, oh, of course, race is socially constructed. But then in the next breath, they start to talk as though there was a deep metaphysical essence to race, which makes it impossible, for example, for white and black people to understand each other. And they start to talk uh, as though, therefore, the, the, the vision of a future society we should embrace is one in which our worldview, our friendships, our rights and duties should be deeply determined uh, by the kind of ethnic uh, group that we fall into. Now, um, that can even take extreme forms in pedagogy. So uh, many of the elite private schools in the United States now, uh, from Sidwell Friends in, 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 in D.C. to Dalton and Horace Mann in New York City, have so-called focus groups in which, so-called affinity groups, in which a teacher will come into a classroom, you know, and the kids are 10 or 8 or 6, and say, uh, so, uh, you know, the most important thing about you is that you're black, and about you is that you're Asian American, and about you is that you're Latino, and about you is that you're white, and you're going to go over in that group over there, and uh, you will be taught just within the confines uh, of this group in order to uh, raise consciousness of your ethnic identity and activate you politically along those lines. And that, to me, it just goes against what human psychology tells us is going to build solidarity. Um, when you tell kids that young from on top that the most important thing about the about them is the color of their skin, they're likely to end up being less solidaristic with each other, to to discriminate against each other more, to exclude each other more. And that's especially the case for white kids. So the idea here is that you then teach the white kids to become good, effective anti-racists who are aware of the unknown privileges, which certainly exist. But everything we know about the history of groups is that once you tell people your group is to be white, then they'll actually fight for the interests of white. And there's now a number of studies which suggest that exactly that is the impact of uh, sort of lectures on white privilege and other kinds of things. It actually makes the people who listen to them discriminate in favor of the in-group more rather than less. And just as a coda to this, these are the reasons why Spivak herself has become very skeptical of a term she coined, pointing in part to, to Narendra Modi's rise in India, but also to some developments in the United States. She has become really worried about the use that the term is being put to because she precisely thinks that the strategic element has gone out of a window and, and all there is is essentialism. So what would be a better solution? Well, a better solution would be to think about intergroup contact theory and the work of Gordon Alpert to say, in what kind of group can we get uh, uh, six, eight, 10, 15 year old kids to actually think of themselves as being part of uh, the same group, to think of themselves as having common interests. And, you know, classic things like putting them on a sports team together in which uh, they actually fight on the same team are much more likely to be effective in that respect than some of the sort of cultural customs we're now taking on. I very much agree with with your critique of of that strand of identitarianism on the left. Um, I, it also occurs to me that I think one reason why it has become so popular, or, or at least has 
experienced, I think, much less pushback than I think it deserves, uh, is because there it, it does seem to be a bit of a misapprehension that this is not just you know the right way of viewing society, but that that it is a way that might be actually politically advantageous to to the left. And so I, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the the sort of partisan political implications of this because I think they're very interesting and 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 not sufficiently described or not sufficiently analyzed. I mean, one of the most interesting parts of the book to me is your description of how both the left and the right have fundamentally misunderstood the political implications of the growing ethnic diversity in the United States. Both sides tend to think that this is good for Democrats and, and that uh, you know the more ethnic self-identification there is, uh, the more Democrats will benefit from this. Now, you call this, quote, the most dangerous idea in American democracy. Why is it wrong and why is it so dangerous in your telling? Yeah, so this is something I really despair over because, you know, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals don't agree on anything anymore in American life. And you'd think that the one thing they agree on would be a positive thing for the country, right? You'd think that if we can at least agree on something, that would be good. And what is the most ambitious social theory that goes largely unquestioned on both sides of the political spectrum? It is a speculative, empirically wrong, and normatively revolting prediction about what America is going to look like a few decades from now. Okay, so what do I mean by this? You have this idea of, uh, you know, whites voting predominantly for the Republican Party and other ethnic groups voting predominantly for the Democratic Party, um, which is largely true at the moment, um, though it's a little more complicated than meets the eye. And so then there's a projection, which is to say, look, uh, we know that white voter groups are shrinking, but supposedly whites as a share of the population, non-Hispanic whites as a share of the population are going to fall below 50% by something like 2045. And so as a result, you know, Democrats are going to have this emerging or perhaps even this inevitable majority. Now, this is what drives uh, a lot of a nativism and a lot of uh, the alarmism, a lot of a panic on the far right. You know, in Michael Anton's really influential essay in 2016, in which he argued for why conservatives should get on board the Trump train, um, he talked about, I quote, the ceaseless importation of third world foreigners, end quote, who would supposedly uh, attack uh, uh, Republican values and the republic itself. And so that's why he said, let Trump storm the cockpit. He may not be able to fly the plane. We may all crash. But unless we turn around where we're going, it is too late anyway, because these people are going to doom us, right? So you can see why that's really dangerous uh, in an obvious way. But the left has bought into a version of this as well. And it makes uh, the Democratic Party often a little lazy. It thinks we don't have to win over people. We don't have to argue for the views of average citizens. Uh, We just have to uh, mobilize the people who are in favor of us anyway, and eventually uh, we'll be sure to win. There was a spate of articles in 2016 and NPR and Vox and other places saying just demographically, Trump has no way of winning um, because of the rise of non-white voters. Well, uh, we saw in the 2020 election uh, that this is a big mistake because the only reason why Joe Biden uh, won the 2020 election is that he strongly increased his share of the vote among white voters. And the only reason why Donald Trump was competitive in the 2020 election is that he strongly improved his share of the vote among virtually every other demographic group, among African-Americans, among 
Asian Americans and particularly among Latinos. And uh, right now we're seeing in polls uh, that Latinos are continuing to trend strongly uh, towards the, the, the Republican Party. So in fact, it's not true that demography is destiny. It's not true that there is this inevitability uh, to Democrats winning in that kind of way. And the more we talk about it in these ways, the more we basically play into the conspiracy theory of a great replacement, which 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 makes people worried about the future and makes them think that we're headed for this uh, sort of fundamental transformation of American society. Uh, that scares a lot of people. That makes it easier for people like Donald Trump to win. It, it does strike me that ultimately, if what we care about is a stable political system that is broadly reflective of the polity as a whole, what we're looking at is a moderate, right of center, socially somewhat conservative, economically somewhat liberal, and very racially diverse core, where you know both parties are fundamentally fighting over the votes of, I don't know, the, the Asian soccer dad who lives in a Dallas suburb. I mean, does that seem to you right? Um, you know, whether or not you agree with exactly which of those policy prescriptions that sort of coalition would would bring, does that seem right to you that this is the most natural, long-run stable political equilibrium and, and the one that ultimately, you know, whatever your policy views, if you are committed to a ethnically diverse democracy is sort of what you have to be rooting for in the long term? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I'm probably to the left of a median voter in America on a whole set of issues. So in a way, it would be lovely if everybody else shared my policy views. But it's just not the case. And it's especially not the case among uh, so-called voters of color, uh, which is to say that a lot of Latinos, a lot of Asian Americans, a lot of African Americans are pretty socially conservative. You know, uh, a lot of them are pretty business minded. Uh, you know, obviously, they share an interest of not wanting to be ruled by racists, of not wanting to be ruled by people who, who don't have an interest at heart. But their substantive values are ones that uh, the Republican Party should be able to, and actually, uh, to a surprising extent, is able to uh, speak to and and to mobilize at at at, at the polls. Um, so, you know, let's think a little bit for what the two different scenarios are here. One scenario is that by 2045, we have a majority-minority America in the way people think, and most people of color vote for the Democratic Party. But uh, I can walk down the street and know with high certitude who you're voting for just by looking at the color of your skin. That doesn't seem great. And by the way, there's still going to be, whatever it is, 47% of white voters who now are deeply disenfranchised and deeply angry and actually have a lot of guns, that doesn't look like it's going to be a good market to live in for anybody. Now, the other possibility is that we have two competitive parties, each of which have a chance of winning elections, each of which, uh, for the demographic coalitions, are not necessarily identical, uh, have deep support among all demographic groups, and compete for them on the basis of ideas, on the basis of uh, different policy preferences about the economy and different policy preferences about how progressive or conservative our culture should be. That seems to me like a much, much healthier state of affairs, and it is obviously the one that we should aim for. But by the way, this question goes even deeper, right? So we've been talking about politics, and politics is a very important thing. It's an especially important thing in the age of Donald Trump and the, and the threat from authoritarian populists on the right. But I also think about society. You know, we've, we've bought in the last years this narrative that there is an obvious and easy juxtaposition between whites as one coherent block and people of color as another coherent block. And that just is not true 
of the current state of America. And hopefully it will remain true of a future state of America. Um, so today, you know, the people of color include a lot of people who are Latino and actually think of themselves as white. Uh, it includes a lot of uh, mixed-race Americans who may have three white grandparents and one Asian grandparent, for example. Uh, it includes uh, a, a lot of people who uh, have different uh, experiences of immigration and different interests. And so uh, to suggest that, for example, the, the, the kid of an Asian-American software engineer who immigrated here 30 years ago, um, you know, and the child grew up somewhere in the affluent suburbs of Silicon Valley, is somehow uh, metaphysically part of the same category as the child of dozens of, of, of grand, grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents who suffered for Jim Crow, who were enslaved, uh, who were brought to this country in chains, should actually offend all of the quote-unquote woke people on the left. It should actually offend a lot of the left because the idea that uh, those experiences or the, the challenges they face are somehow the same just because they're both of non-white skin is, 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 is really quite absurd. So, uh, you know, I worry about not just the electoral miscalculation that we get from this idea that America is going to be majority-minority, but also the way in which we caricature and oversimplify the current state of America when we think of it as this giant clash between whites and people of color. And so I've become very careful about using that term because I think it is uh, misleading uh, as often as it is elucidating. I want to make sure we spend a few minutes talking about where we go from here and some of the sort of forward-looking suggestions that you make. Um, I, I appreciate how you begin your your last chapter, chapter 10, and kind of noting the the limits in, in a book like this where you uh, make a bunch of really intense and far-reaching diagnoses and then you're sort of stuck um, having to uh, uh, come up with some solutions. You call this the the, the 10th chapter problem. Uh, you know, we, we in legal academia have this this problem with our uh, uh, articles as well, the, the last section problem where we're supposed to solve all the, all the issues that we've, we have raised. But you do make some, some kind of concrete suggestions, and I wanted to, to, to ask about that. One question for you I have is, what do you think the role, if any, there should be for race-conscious policies? So, you know, as you note, it used to be in the past that when people, especially you know, on the left, who tended to care most about this, wanted to help a particular racial or ethnic group, they would have to find some non-race-based way of doing so. They would have to create a program that applied to everyone um, in order to get the buy-in necessary to help the particular group they were most concerned about. Um, but now the, the kind of culture has shifted, and often many programs that don't actually even have that much to do with race often have a kind of a racial justice component added to it, which can lead to sort of divisiveness and the lack of general support. On the other hand, there are still obviously very meaningful racial disparities, especially for groups like Black Americans or Native Americans who have suffered sort of the worst of historical discrimination. So that it does, does not seem realistic that one could or even should entirely get rid of race conscious kind of uh, policy. Where do you think the future of that lies, you know, given the, the need to, to broaden what, what the democracy we live in looks like? Yeah, I do worry about the way in which race-conscious or race-sensitive policy has become such a default in uh, the Democratic Party's toolbox that we often make decisions which are politically deeply toxic and also often uh, significantly immoral. Um, so I was really uh, quite perturbed when I followed the deliberations of ACIP, which is the 
uh, committee advising the CDC on uh, the vaccine rollout. And they, and you know, every other country in the world uh, more or less said the order of priority for vaccines should be by age because COVID is a, is a disease uh, in which the old are uh, at so much more risk statistically than anybody else. And then obviously there's some special categories for hospital workers and so on. And ACIP said, uh, you know, yes, that would be the most practical way of doing it. Uh, it would have all of these advantages, but it's unacceptable because it so happens that older people are disproportionately white. And so therefore we cannot give older people the vaccine first. And they ended up vaccinating a much more complicated mixed decision-making procedure for who would get the vaccine when, which not only was far more difficult to administer and led to all kinds of absurdities at the back end. I ended up getting the vaccine really early because I was considered an essential worker in the state of Maryland because I'm a college professor, even for my college classes were online. But it actually predictably had the result of killing more black people because it turns out that giving two 23-year-old black Uber drivers the vaccine before a 80-year-old black retiree is going to increase the number of black people in the country who die. So, you know, there's often really bad and woolly thinking which pits different demographic groups against each other in a way that drives many voters in the hands of Donald Trump. Uh, But that also on substantive moral grounds is just really a significant mistake. And so uh, I was thinking about, you know, how to puzzle through this complicated question and, uh, you know, I, I, I admit to you of some trepidation uh, uh, since you're a legal academic, uh, but I often am imp- uh, sort of find the constitutional discourse in the United States to be unhelpful. When I try to puzzle through how I feel about the death penalty, I don't find it that useful to think about whether or not punishment uh, constitutes cruel and unusual uh, punishment. Um, I don't think that that's the most important thing at stake when we're thinking about whether or not we should uh, have the state execute people. Um, But in this particular area, I think that the set of standards that the Supreme Court has come to over time is actually the right one. And that is, uh, first of all, that according to the Equal Protection Amendment, uh, there's a very strong disposition against the state taking race into account in uh, the kinds of benefits that it grants to citizens or the kinds of duties that it imposes on them, because that is always a dangerous thing which uh, could be misused and which uh, goes against our equal dignity as American citizens, that there can, as with many other rights, uh, be exceptions when there's a compelling state interest which demands that public authorities act in a way that you know, might justify a temporary uh, abrogation of one of these rights. Uh, but that then, uh, the way in which we do that has to be very narrowly tailored Uh, which means that there's no way of uh, pushing this compelling state interest in a different kind of way. And so what you come out with then is that the default is a universalist welfare state, which is much more politically popular, uh, which says, uh, you know, let's give these benefits to poor people, uh, to people who are needy in in, in whatever uh, respect may be relevant in the particular case. And by the way, those are disproportionately going to be Uh, African-Americans, for example, because of the history of injustice they've suffered and the fact that there still is a greater share of poverty among African-Americans. So actually, it will have a racially equalizing component, but it's only in rare cases where such a universalist remedy is unavailable and there is a compelling interest, uh, though we're allowed to uh, violate the Equal Protection Amendment, 
and mixed state benefits depend on the race of an applicant. Uh, that to me is, is, is the right basic framework. And then there can be debates about what does or does not qualify for that as affirmative action qualified for that or not. There's been many court cases about that question. Uh, all of that is perfectly fine. We're going to have hard cases and moments when we have to argue. Uh, but that, to me, is the right standard. And it's a standard that, by the way, Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg have both agreed on. So there are obviously more policy implications of this. You talk about immigration and as a very obviously interesting and important policy. But the, the question I wanted to end our conversation with is, how much to you is this fundamentally a matter of changing policy versus changing our own internal conception of what a diverse democracy looks like? Um, because it strikes me, and, and this is, I think, what I found fundamentally most valuable from your book, is that it's an articulation of a positive and normatively very attractive idea of what a diverse democracy can look like that avoids the pessimism on both the right and left. I mean, in a sense, it seems to me that if we all just accepted your vision of what the future could look like, a lot of the policy issues would sort themselves out because we'd at least agree on a good North Star. Yeah. So, look, I think there's things we can do to keep our society together. And there's all kinds of policy suggestions I make in in the book. But I do think that this Chapter 10 problem is very real. So most uh, serious nonfiction books that speak about some deep challenge in the world um, spend the first nine chapters analyzing a problem uh, and then have this really unsatisfying 10th chapter where they either suggest remedies which might work, or which are so ambitious that we know they're never going to be adopted, or sort of, you know, a piecemeal idea here and a piecemeal idea there, which all of, you know, which all sounds sort of perfectly fine, uh, but won't actually make a real impact. And so my way of avoiding the chapter 10 problem in this book is to point to the fact that we have made real progress over the last decades, that we can build a society which lives up to its own standards and ideals better, um, because uh, the trajectory is going in the right direction. And now, uh, you know, the objection to that is going to be the usual skepticism that, that optimists face, which is, look, I'm pointing at all of these injustices because I'm exercised by them, because I think they're terrible, because I want to fight against them. And so if you're saying that perhaps everything is not as bad as I'm saying, then you must not care about those injustices. We must be denying that they exist. There are deep injustices in America today, and I'm as motivated as anybody to fight against them. But if we want to actually remedy them, it's really important to see whether or not things have gotten better in the last decades or not. Because if they have gotten better in the last decades, then we can continue to build on that progress. And we actually have a recipe for what to do. And again, by the way, if you're telling people our society is the worst ever, and no matter what we do, things are not going to get better, and the only option is some kind of revolution, when most people are going to say, no, thank you very much, I don't like that idea at all, I'm going to go to that other person who's promising that he'll somehow turn back the clock and save us from having to deal with the challenges that come with a more diverse democracy. And so, you know, I think that the role of a writer like myself, the role of, um, you know, politically influential people like many of your listeners, the role of citizens um, should be to make sure that we accelerate the positive processes that are already happening in our society and that we argue for a more optimistic vision of society, where we build a vision for society in which most citizens, whether they're from a majority group or from various minority groups, 
would actually want to live in together. Um, so that's what I try to do in, in, in my book and The Great Experiment. It's a wonderful book. Thank you for writing it. And thank you so much for uh, talking to me about it. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. On April 20th, we'll be hosting a joint live show with Georgetown Law about the implications of the Russian invasion on the international system. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.